Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. get started in prayer. Father, thanks for this night and thanks for your um, provision and for allowing us to be here to study and pray that you open our hearts. Thank you for the challenge that we have from studying your word and the strengthening we can give to one another and the encouragement to one another. And just help us to understand what we study tonight, Father, and apply it to our lives. And we just thank you so much for all that you've done in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So the question is Matthew... 23, okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's look at that passage. Matthew 23. By the way, did the Pharisees tithe? Yeah, they did. Okay. Um, Should they have tithed? Yeah. Why? While the temple was still standing, right? So under the Old Testament economy, the way that Israel supported the priesthood and supported the temple and and all that was through this tax called the tithe. And how much was it? 23 and a third percent total um, tithing. So and that was a tax. That was that was compulsory giving. Could you give over and above that? Sure. David did, right? He offered things and there are many um, examples of people giving an offering above and beyond their their tithe. Um, and what Christ says in Matthew 23:23 is he's saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, annas, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. All right. And what he's saying, what Christ is saying there is he's, he's, um, he's calling them hypocrites, first of all. So what, what is a hypocrite? An actor, right? needs to play a part. You put a, if you watch the old Greek theater, you know, and you have those little masks you put on in front of you to play the part. That's called playing a part. These people were hypocritical. They were playing a part. They, they really didn't mean it, but they were just making themselves look good. And what, what's the point that Christ is trying to make here with them, do you think? What's he trying to get at? What's the big picture? What was the problem with the Pharisees? Right. They were overlooking what was important and they were concentrating on what comparatively was unimportant to God. What did God really desire from people? The heart. All right. Under the Old Testament economy. All right. If you just paid your tithe and did your deal and that was it. Did that make God happy? No, that's the point he's trying to get at, I think. Under the Old Testament economy, you were to tithe. There's no doubt about it. It was a tax for Israel. When it comes to the church, that that command or that that thing is not repeated. Rather, what you constantly see is that as everyone has as God has prospered each one, so let him give. You not only see it here in First Corinthians, but at the end of Second Corinthians, we see it as well. Where Paul talks about you should give according as God has prospered you. All right. As God has allowed you to give, give whatever is on your heart. All right. The thing he's dealing with the Pharisees here 
is that they were so careful. I mean, if you ever notice Dill and Mint and Anna's, you know, little dinky seeds, you know, these guys would be up all night counting out, you know, 10% of their seeds to give them to God for fear that somehow they were going to make God angry if they didn't give him their tithe of their their little little herbs. Um, and while they were doing that, they were neglecting the things that God really cared about, which is mercy and justice and and things like that. I don't know, did that answer it? You've got to, you've got to, you've got to understand. Yeah, and, and that's the, that's important. That's a very important question. You, what is the most critical component of biblical interpretation? What? Context, right? Like buying a house. Context, context, context. That's the most. And and you got to put this thing within the context. When Christ spoke this statement. What was the situation? The temple was still standing. Israel was still a nation. The priesthood was still in force. So under that economy, under that, that time, what were they to do? They were to tithe. That, that, was, that was necessary. But after Israel ceased being a nation, after the temple was no longer operative, Okay, after the priesthood was essentially disbanded and, and become inoperative, it was replaced, did the need for tithing go on to support Israel? No, it didn't. you got to put it within the context. I don't know if that explains it. Yeah. Okay, you got to put it within the context. When he spoke it, he absolutely was true. But does that mean it's true for all time? Not necessarily. You have to make that case. What, what if people say that's how the church is uh, in, in operation now? No, the church is in operation from the offerings of people. I don't think you can make that that valid. You, can make the, you can't make a valid argument on that. Yeah. Well, bad, well, how about Paul? I mean, one of the one of the things we looked at in First Corinthians, um, remember First um, Corinthians middle part there uh, through you know eight, nine, ten, eleven. What was the point Paul was making in the, in that passage? He forfeited that. Why? He had the right, but he gave it up. So no one can accuse him of taking the money. Now, as believers, should we fund our churches? Yes. Sure we should. Absolutely. Does that mean we give them 10% of our money? Yes. That's what they say. I know that's what they say. Can you make a biblical can you make a biblical argument binding on Christians today from the text of the New Testament that that is the case? <laughs> they will. I know Larry Burkett's spinning. He's not rolling over. He's actually spinning right now. Um, and, and Howard Dayton, who took over his place, is probably you know coughing up his skull at this point in time. But but just stop and think about it. 
what's a, what's a higher standard? Giving God 10% or giving God what you want to give him? What's a higher moral, what's the more difficult thing to do, do you think? Giving from your heart. That's the tougher thing to do. That's the law. That's it. That's the point of it. You know, it's like my, it's like, you know, with my wife and I, you know, what's easier for me to give her 10% of my income that she can go spend whatever she wants and does what she wants or give as much as I want because I love her. How do you think she's going to get more out of me? Oh, you're right. You know, yeah, 10% doesn't go very far. You know, because I love her. Because and, and and see, that's the point that Paul is trying to make, and New Testament writers are trying to make. If you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, you don't need the rules. But they say if you give ten percent, the pastor says give ten percent, and then you give an offering to him. They're making it up. Well, it, it, you know, there, there, there's a lot that goes in that, you know, I've, I really struggle and, and thought through this quite a bit, this whole issue of, of giving. You know, you've got single mothers that they're lucky to be able to put food on the table and roof over the head. I mean, you know, if they work hard, they can they can pull that off. And then the pastor beats them on the head that they got to give 10 percent of their income. You know, and they're thinking, OK, food, eat or give to the church. Electric or give to the church. Roof over my head or give to the church. You know. That's a guilt trip. That's a guilt trip. Now, what what you should do is you should be generous. There's ways to give outside of just you know cutting a check and dropping money in the offering plate. And let's stop and think about this a minute here. Remember, remember back in the Old Testament. And by the way, just so you understand, this 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 principle also is in the Old Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. Remember uh, the story of I was getting mixed up. Elijah, Elijah, and the widow that had the son. And remember, he went and he asked her, said, "You know, I'm hungry. Why don't you bake me some some food?" And what did she tell him? I've only got enough for one more meal for my son and I. I'm going to bake it. We're going to die. And remember what Elijah told her? Yeah, he said, go borrow pots. And what did she do? She well, she borrowed pots from everybody. Huh? No. She, she gave him the food first, fed him first. Then he told her, go get pots. Go get, uh, yeah, for the oil. And she did. She went and collected. And she filled up all of those pots. And he said, I... Now, I want you to go sell this, and what should she to do with the money? Pay off her debt and do what? Yeah. What about the 10% to the temple? Or the 23 and a third? Of the he didn't say, now, go pay your tithe, and then go pay your debt, and then go, right? No, he told her, pay your debt and live on it. You understand God's looking at your heart. God is really more interested in why you're doing what you're doing than, than you, you know, okay, I get out my adding machine and 
okay, I, I give this amount of money to the church. You know, um, why are you giving that money? You know, is it because you're you're under some guilt trip by your pastor? Somehow you think God's up in heaven with his account book and you know zinging you every time you don't you know pay the exact amount you should be paying. And you know, is that the God that is that, is that the God that you picture that God God wants you to be generous? And that might be that you give them a whole lot more than 10%. You know, and there might be times in your life when you can't give as much as you'd like to give, right? You might have seasons of life where where it's difficult for you to give a lot. I'm not going to buy my position in the church. It's called simony. It's called simony. Yeah, from Simon Magus who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. And during the Middle Ages, people would buy priesthoods and bishop, bishop positions from the Catholic Church by paying them money. It's called simony. Now, what you want to do is you want to make sure somebody's given. You know, if somebody's not giving anything, that's a, that's a, that is a spiritual issue. But to say, okay, if you want to be in leadership, I need a copy of your tax return, and I'm going to compare them to the receipts that you give to the church, and if you don't hit 10%, you know, you're out. You know, that's a Pharisee. That's, that's worse than Pharisees. And God's looking at your heart. God is, let's say you're, you're, a billion, you're a multi-billionaire. You make $20 billion a year. What's 10% of $20 billion? Two, right? How many in here can live on $18 billion a year? All right. You can't spend $18 billion a year. You understand that? If you spend a million dollars a minute, you couldn't spend $18 billion a year. All right. That's a lot of money to try and spend. But now let's say you make $10,000 a year. And you give a thousand of that. Now you've got nine. Can anybody here live on 9000 a year? kind of tough it's a little tougher right now if you're looking at the heart God's looking at the heart what do you think God expects the 20 billion dollar a year guy to do probably give a bit more than 10 percent right because what's God looking at your heart why are you doing this and all I'm saying is those who want to make the case for New Testament tithing always head to the Old Testament they always do. That's where they land. Okay? And in Malachi, it was true because the, the temple was in operation and the people were not bringing their tithes. And the priests, if you read Nehemiah 13, the priests had to go back to tilling the land because they couldn't take care of the temple. And that's why it was robbing God. Of course it was because the temple was in operation. If we were in the Old Testament, we would not be having this discussion because that's how you funded the theocracy of Israel. We don't have that today. And people say, well, Abraham gave a tenth, right? He gave a tenth of the spoils. Well, it says he gave a tenth of the top of the heap, literally. It's a tenth of the best. And did he? what did he do the next year? He didn't go back, right? Did he ever go back to Melchizedek year after year and give Melchizedek 10%? And what would Melchizedek have done with the 10%? 
What would they have done with 10%? Yeah. I'm not trying to discourage. Don't walk out and say, well, Alan Schaefer says you don't have to give money to the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're under a higher standard. God's looking at your heart. Someone asked me a question the other day. Someone's starting a church and they have to lay it out their theology or their statements of faith. And they asked me, what would you say the church is just starting and what would they tell their members Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that case, the pastor is probably going to have to hold down a job, right? Because unless you got a multi-billionaire, unless the guy's making twenty billion a year goes to your church, it's going to be kind of tough. You can't do that, I don't think. Yeah. It's all from God, you know. When we start pulling out our pencil and start saying, well, you know, everybody in the church has got to do this, and, you know, that that's not what Christianity, that's not what God's work is all about. Well, in the, in the early church, how did they give? How much did they give in the early church? Acts, Pentecost. All of it, right? I mean, they, they gave all of it. And and remember, when what was Ananias and Sapphira's big sin? They lied about... Peter says, look, it's your money to do with as you what? Wish. He didn't say, well, 90% of it was yours to do as you wish. You sold the money. It was yours to do as you wish. You said, I'll give God all of it, but you didn't give God all of it. You kept back part of it, which was still fine. Just don't lie to God. That's all. That, their big sin was not that they didn't give the full amount. Their sin was they lied to God and made themselves look like they were giving it all when they really weren't. This is a debated topic, folks. I'm not trying to convince you, you know, yes or no. I mean, in our church, our pastor, you know, believes in tithing. You know, we have we share a difference of opinion there. He knows where I stand. I know where he stands. You know, I believe you should give as God has prospered you and you should give till it costs you something. You know, there's another question. What does it cost you to give? You know, there are people that give God 10 percent and they don't miss it. You know, if you're a multimillionaire and you give God, giving God 10 percent of your money, it's really not a sacrifice. I mean, you really don't miss it. But you know, if you're if you're most of us in here who work for a living every day, give till it costs you something. And I, what I mean by that is it's not your second vacation home or your new Lincoln Continental fully loaded or your whatever. What's it cost you to give to God? And to go back to to what was said over here, and I think it's a valid point. Sometimes we get ourselves so much in hock in debt, we can't give. Now, if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, like that poor guy on the TV, what should you as a Christian do? 
pay your debts off so that you can do what? So you can give. Don't give to the church and default on your debts. What kind of testimony is that? Is it a good testimony to default on your debts while making sure your church is getting 10%? What kind of testimony is that? It's a bad one. So what should you do? Live within your means. Get yourself out of debt so then you can give. You know, and, 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 and the point is valid. There are members in the church say, well, you know, I really can't give God anything, you know, because I got, you know, I got my third car, I got a, you know, my vacation home, and I'm funding that big widescreen plasma TV I bought. And now, wait a minute. If you're saying that, that's a spiritual issue. That's someone who shouldn't be in leadership. If you can't give because you've financed yourself up to your gills and debt for stuff that you don't need, that's a spiritual issue. But if you're living within your means, if you're frugal in that, give God what he lays on your heart to whatever amount it is. And I would say you need to give until it costs you something. Until you, you have to make a decision on giving something up. That's what David did, right? Remember? He, he brought the, the ark in the temp, into the Jerusalem and... And he wanted to sacrifice to God. And the guy said, here, take my oxen. And Dave said, no, I'm going to pay for them. He said, no, 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 just take them. Dave said, I'm not going to sacrifice anything to God that didn't cost me something. If I go home and I give Donna a million-dollar diamond ring and say, yeah, some guy gave it to me at work. Here, have it. You know, I was an idiot for telling her, right? But now, how is she going to value that as opposed to me going and giving her a thousand dollar diamond ring that I had to save a year for and give up all my golf for. What's going to tell her I love her more? All right. That's the same thing that they got. What was it? What were you giving up? If you love God, if, you know, honestly, we could all do better about this in here. If we really love God, is an amount an option? Is, is an amount an issue? No. <coughs> and the, and it, it, there's there's other things too, your time, your attention, your 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 abilities. Yeah. And, and I remember a guy that said, you know, well, I pay my ten percent. What I do with the ninety is irrelevant to God. Well, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it is relevant to God, you know. You know, because all of it's God's, right? All of it's his. And all I'm saying is when you go to Corinthians and you look at the giving passages where Paul is talking about giving, it would have been very easy for him to lay the tithe down, and he didn't. He said, as God has prospered you, lay it aside, determine beforehand what you're going to give, and give that amount. It was a benevolence offering. And by the way, how, how were the, you know, the early church was funded by the free will offerings of people. But there was no issue of compulsion. You know, and, and what, the early church was made up mainly of what? Poor people and slaves. They didn't have anything to give to start out with. 
you know. And Paul commended the Macedonian believers because out of their deep poverty, they gave. And he chided the Corinthians because they were probably the wealthiest church. And they weren't giving nearly what they should give. It's always a hard issue. It's always a hard issue. And see, isn't that what Christ did on the Sermon on the Mount? It's not that you commit adultery. How do you look at a woman? It's really not that you stick a knife in a guy's back. Do you hate him? Right? It's not whether you swear by the gold on the dome of the temple. Do you keep your word? Christ has always drawn it back to the heart. Why do you do what you do? What is your heart attitude? And if your heart attitude is correct, your actions will follow from that. They'll flow out of that. And that's the harder thing to do. That You know, it's easier for God to just give you, okay, here's the 25 rules you do to make me happy. That, that would be the easy thing for us, right? Give me 10%, show up Sunday morning and Sunday evening, witness to two people a week, don't drink alcohol, stay away from cigarettes, don't go to movies and don't gamble and don't dance. And you're okay, you know? And that's what we want. We want... And that, unfortunately, that's what a lot of baby Christians, they want the rules. You know, give me, just give me the rules. And where, where there might be a, a place for rules early on in your Christian life, you need to grow out of that. And you need to get to the point where it's not, gee, you know, should I go see this movie at the movie theater? The question is, what am I watching? What am I watching? Because the problem I've seen with a lot of Christians is there's movies that they have no business watching, but they wait to come on the TV, you know, watch them there. But they wouldn't dare darken the door of the sinful movie theater, although they're seeing the same stuff. And you'd probably be surprised at how many people watch Desperate Housewives and all that other junk in your church. I've never watched an episode of Desperate Housewives, so I don't intend to. Star Trek is okay, but all right. That was a short. That was a short answer to a question. But no, it's a, it's a valid one because it pops up again in, in in chapter six, thirteen here. You know, what is what is your heart? What is your heart? I think it's more of a standard that he has. You know, and if God's laid it on your heart to give 10%, by all means, do that. You know, if that's, if that's what God's called you to do, do it. If you feel comfortable doing that, do it. That's what God's called you to do. If you're doing it just out of compulsion, God says, keep your money because I want a cheerful giver. It's not that I dread it or anything. It's just that that's what I've been told to come to do. And if you want to do that, if God's laid it on your heart to keep doing that, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. 
ladies to it. You know, no, 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 I like that church. No. Well, I'd have more trouble with a woman wearing a skirt on a platform than pants. Think about it, but not long. You know. Yeah, that, that, you know that. You know, there are churches like that, and sometimes you have to defer for the weaker brethren. You know, like if God's called you to that church, you got to go along with some of this, you know, some of these screwy rules just because that's what God's called you to do. And that's what Paul's saying. Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give up my freedoms. I'll do that. That's fine. I don't need it that bad. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, the, the more, the more I study the Word of God, the more I'm exposed to the scripture, the more I'm, I'm, I'm getting, a, getting an understanding that God is really looking at, at your heart. And, and if he were to show up and you say, well, should I go see this movie tonight? God would ask you, why do you want to do it? He wouldn't say yes or no. What do we want? Yes or no. God would say, well, why, why do you want to go see that? You know, why do you want to do that? Should I give you... 10% or should I give you this money? God said, well, why, why are you giving it to me? What's your heart? Why are you doing that? I mean, a lot of us, you know, you know, how do you think I would feel if I went home and Donna made my best meal, the, the thing I love, chicken El Paso. Oh, that's good stuff. And she just, here's your, here's your dinner. I'm going to go off and watch a movie. Enjoy it. You know, how do you think I feel? But how do you think I would feel about it? And yet, what do we do with God? We walk in church Sunday morning and say, I'm here, God. I hope you like it. All right, fine. God's looking for your heart. Why are you doing this? Yeah. Anyways, we're in chapter 3. And we're now four chapters behind. No, we're not. Um, big picture, what, Paul, what is Paul dealing with in 2 Corinthians? What's the challenge to him? And what are they doing? What are they trying to do? To give themselves a platform for their message. All right. And Paul's got to defend himself. He really doesn't want to do that. But he's doing it anyway. All right. So in chapter 3, verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need some other's epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? This goes back to a common practice in those days. When somebody showed up, all right, they would bring a, a, a letter of commendation with them from another congregation or something would say, you know, this guy, he's okay. He knows what he's talking about. Or... As you read in, in, um, in Thessalonians, remember Second Thessalonians? Paul says, uh, I don't want you to receive as though some have a letter from us. And evidently what happened is that some people went up to Thessalonica and they supposedly had a letter from Paul that really Paul didn't write, but they passed themselves off as having his authority. All right. 
Paul is saying, do I have to start all over again with you people? They knew Paul, right? Did Paul have to re Paul say, do I have to introduce myself to you all over again and go back to earning your trust? Do I have to start over again? You should know me. You should know what drives me. You should know how I lived among you. Do I have to do that? Do I have to go get letters of commendation to somehow make myself appear as, as, as somebody that I am? In fact, in fact, one of the things that some of the commentaries say is that as Paul, Paul might be telling them, do I have to go get a letter of commendation from the Jerusalem church that I'm okay to come and preach to you people? You know what I was like among you. You know, you know how I lived. What's wrong with you people? I got to do this all over again? Because he says in verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Epistle here is the letter. You're our letter. You want to know my letter of commendation? You guys. You guys. Um, we're studying through uh, Timothy in, um, in our Bible study at work. And one of the things that Paul tells Timothy very early on, he, he talked about sound doctrine. In fact, sound doctrine is really the theme phrase in the pastoral epistles. Hygienic doctrine, sound doctrine. And Paul says, you know how you find out if somebody's teaching you sound doctrine? You know how to find out if a guy is preaching sound doctrine? How do you find out if a guy's preaching sound doctrine? Hmm? Well, it does. That, that goes without saying. But how, how, what's, what's one way? If I walk into a church, how can I tell if that pastor's preaching sound doctrine? What could I look at? Huh? Who else could I look at? Yeah. What's the flock like? Right? If the flock is all screwed up, he's probably not preaching sound doctrine, right? I mean, all things considered. And that's what Paul is saying. What is the... What I'm saying is, if, if, if I walk into a church and the people in that church are critical and pharisaical and condemnatory, what kind of doctrine do you think he's teaching them? Rules. Rules, regulations, legalism. If I walk into a church and it's a free-for-all, and uh, anything goes. And in fact, the more flagrant you can send, the more you're accepted. Tolerance. Tolerance. We got to love everybody. Or if I walk into a church and they're they're promoting, you know, their love for the gay community by inviting them to be members of the church and live any way they want. What kind of doctrine is that? Paul is saying the end of the commandment is love out of pure heart a good conscience and faith unfeigned. You want to know if you're listening. In fact, this is one way. How do you know you're physically? How do you know you're eating the right foods? You're healthy, right? All right. How do you know you're eating the right spiritual food? You're generally healthy. And what is healthy? Healthy is God-like. Are you like God? You think like God. You act like God. You have the heart of God. Not that we can all reach that perfectly, you understand. But is that the direction? If I walk into a church and I see people are filled with love for one another and have a passion for the truth of the word of God 
and love God, what kind of doctrine are they getting? They're getting the good stuff. And Paul is saying here, you are my epistle. How do you know that I'm preaching the truth? Look at yourselves. You're better than any letter of commendation I could bring. Clearly, you are an epistle, a letter of Christ, ministered to us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. Paul is saying, you are my epistle. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he calls them, they're his crown of rejoicing, right? And again, that's not a crown of metal that he wears throughout eternity. But when he gets to heaven, what is one of the great rewards that Paul is going to have? People there. He's going to see these people there. That One of his rewards is seeing people that he's been able to impact with the gospel. That's one of his rewards. And Paul is saying, you guys know what I'm about. Do I have to introduce myself all over again to you people? Look at your hearts. Look at, look at your life. Look at the impact that I had. You know that I was preaching the truth to you because of the way you are. Have you forgotten it already? And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from God. We're not sufficient in and of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. What do you think he's trying to get at there? Hmm? He didn't pick himself. He says, I don't think myself as being sufficient. As being sufficient. Think also can mean consider or to reason. What is Paul saying here? What was the one? What, 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 what were the Corinthians? What were they sort of looking at in the people that came their way? Wisdom, knowledge, erudition, the ability to speak. And what did Paul say? I'm not sufficient of myself. Where does my sufficiency come from? From God. Where does our sufficiency as people come from? God. It's not our message. It's not our brains. It's not our intellect. It's not our wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And Paul says, I don't think of myself as being sufficient. And one of the, one of the, and some commentators said one of the arguments that the detractors were making is, well, you know, Paul, you know, he sort of bumbles around a little bit and he's not as erudite as we are and he's not as sophisticated as we are. And we got the degrees from, you know, Jerusalem University that show that we're the experts and he doesn't have that. And, you know, they're trying to pass themselves off as the experts. And Paul's saying, my sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter. This gives you a hint of what the false teachers were preaching. What were they preaching, do you think? Yep. He read the MacArthur commentary. Um, and he remembered it. The biggest, the biggest problem you had in those days is that 
you had people that were steeped in Jewish tradition becoming Christians and trying to reconcile their Jewish traditions and legalism with Christianity. And whenever you try to reconcile those two things, what do you wind up with? A mess. All right. And Paul is saying you had these people that come in there and they're saying, yeah, you know, Christ is the savior of the world and there's salvation by faith. But then you've got to do all of these things in the law. You got to keep all of this stuff, all the traditions or most of the traditions, the dietary restrictions, the, the restrictions on clothing and, and all of this kind of stuff. And Paul is saying, you know what, we're ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. What's the letter? What's it talking about there? The law. Absolutely. And remember in Philippians, he said, when I compared my credentials with Christ, I could count these as human excrement to be thrown out for the excellency of knowing Christ. All right. And what he's saying here, and, and by the way, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's not a charismatic free for all verse. Some have tried to take that verse and say, well, we don't need to really study the Bible because that's the letter. We just need the spirit. In fact, there are some that have made that accusation. You know, you know, when I, when I would, when I talked to this one guy about, I think it was, I think it was him. He said, well, you know, the, the, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. You don't need to study the Bible. It's the spirit that gives life. That's not the contrast Paul is drawing here. What is the contrast he is drawing? What is the letter in this context? The Old Testament law. It's not, it's not the word of God, all right? It's the Old Testament law that's in context. And what did the Old Testament law in and of itself, what could it only produce? Condemnation, right? The Old Testament law was a codification of character attributes. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, are you going to have anybody ahead of him? Thou shalt not make unto me any graven images. If you love God the way you should, are you going to worship him the right way? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you love God, are you going to presume upon his character? Are you going to take advantage of him and his, his good nature and his, his, his forgiveness? No, that's what it means to take his name in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you love God, are you going to spend time with him? Yeah, right? Thou shalt not kill. If you love God and God loves people, are you going to kill them? Are you commit adultery with them? Are you going to lie? Are you going to steal from them? Are you going to bear false witness against them? Are you going to honor your parents? It all goes back to the heart. All right? And really, that's what Christ was hitting at. Remember, we, earlier we talked about Matthew 5, where he said, You've heard it said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Where does the sin come from? The heart. And what the Pharisees had done is they had reduced everything back out to the external. The heart was irrelevant. It's what you did on the outside that mattered and how you looked. The way you felt, your heart, not an issue to them. And Christ is saying the letter kills. The law kills you. Why does the law kill you? 
the law kills you in the sense that here's God's standard and here you are. And nothing that you can do will ever make, meet his standard. It, it brings you to your end. You, you understand who God is and what he is like. It's not, and what the Pharisees have done, see, is they, they pulled God down, then lifted themselves up, and then they were able to meet. They were able to meet. They made God less than he was. They made themselves a lot more than they were. And then they, they found that they could touch God, in a sense, in their minds. And Paul is saying, you know, the letter kills. Why does the letter kill? All the law, laws, legal system. we got a lawyer in here. What do laws tell us? Yeah, it doesn't tell you what you did right. And you know what? I didn't get any letters from my government authority saying, Alan, we really appreciate the fact that you, you follow the speed limit. Thank you for paying your taxes. And we appreciate the fact you didn't murder anyone, so we didn't have to send any police to your house. And thanks for not stealing from your neighbor next door. I don't get that right. But you know what? If I do something wrong, they show up. Right? That's what the law does. It shows you where you've erred because it's displaying God's holy character. If you want to go by the law, you're going to be dead because you can't, you can't make it. And by the way, just so you understand, God never intended the law as a means of salvation, right? And how do you know that? Well, it says in Hebrews, if the, first command, if the first covenant was able to make you holy, why did he promise a second one? Right? If the first covenant was, was sufficient for you to make it to heaven, why did God promise that there's going to be a new covenant coming along? That doesn't make any sense. The whole reason he promised the new is that the old couldn't do it. Now, it wasn't, and Paul's going to make the statement here, it's not that the old is bad, because the origin comes from God, right? So it is good. But it's just not going to save you. It's not going to make you right with God. And what these Judaizers were doing is they were coming back in, laying all this legal code. We talked about some of the legal code tonight, the tithing legal code. There are churches you walk into where that is a burden placed around the necks of people. And you know, you're thinking, you know, boy, you know, I got to feed the kids this week. And, but if I feed the kids, I can't pay my tithe. But if I don't pay my tithe, the pastor's going to be beating on my door. And I'm going to have my name read out in the church service as some awful person because I didn't pay my... What kind, of, what kind of life is that? That does happen in some churches. What kind of life is that? You know, that's, that kills you. It destroys you. The Spirit gives you life. It doesn't mean you're, you don't have any rules at all. Of course you do. Where God's made a commandment, we go for it. But God's looking at your heart. Why are you doing this thing? But if the ministry of death written on and engraved on stones, look at the ministry of death. What did the law do? It killed you. And what was it written on? Stones. If the ministry of death was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? You know, if the Old Testament law, which only produced death, was a wonderful thing, what's the New Covenant going to be like? And, and, and what Paul's arguing from here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the less thing was a really great, 
what's the greater thing going to be like? If the lesser thing, the law of stone, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new covenant going to be? It's even more so. You want to go back and live under the old covenant? You want to go back to something that was good, but it couldn't bring life? You want to go back to that thing when you have something much better to go forward to? In fact, that was the message of Hebrews. That message of Hebrews is you have a bunch of people sitting on the fence and they, they, they're from the old covenant and they, they're Jews and they, 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 they've heard the gospel, but they've not yet made their commitment to the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you got to go on. There is no going back. In fact, if you go back and kill the, go the bull or the goat tomorrow, there's no more sacrifice for sin. Because you're trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant and counting an unholy thing. If you look at the cross of Christ and you determine that the blood of that bull is better for my sin than that sacrifice, what are you saying about that sacrifice? He was a criminal. He should have died. He's an imposter. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, you're toast. <laughs> All you can look forward to is judgment now, man. You've had it. You can't go back. you got to go forward. You want to go back to the thing that kills you? No. Go ahead. In fact, that's the imagery Paul uses in, in Galatians. The law was our schoolmaster. What was a schoolmaster? Well, it goes back to those days. I'm a very wealthy man. I have a snotty little kid here that needs to grow up and learn how to, how to take care of the family family wealth and that, and I'm going to hire somebody that's going to discipline him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that slave that I would hire, or that person I would hire, had the right to discipline him as often and as much as needed to turn him into a citizen, a responsible adult. But the day came when that person, that my son, became an adult, and when he became an adult, the job of the schoolmaster was over. What was the law to us? It was our schoolmaster. It slapped us around. It beat us. It disciplined us until we came to understand our position and who we were and what we were all about. And then when we came to Christ by faith and received salvation, the need for the law went away. Its purpose was accomplished. It did what God called it to do. I'm sorry, you're going to ask something? No, it's not. They didn't have it to start out with. These are people that are not saved. They're in danger of apostatizing, of going back to a system that doesn't save. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, so if you come right up to the cross of Christ, you understand it fully, you comprehend his death, and you turn away from that and go back to your system, you may never again come back. J. Vernon McGee. Yeah. You don't have it. You don't have it. Because he says, let's go on to perfection. Don't go back. Let's go on. You know. Um, and Paul is trying to contrast here. The Old Testament, it brings death. But will the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, 
the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now, both are needed. You understand that. Before you can become a Christian, you need to realize what? You need it. Right? What's the first rule of selling somebody something? They need it. They don't need it. You're not going to sell it to them, right? Um, that's the whole art of marketing. Develop a need. Create, I've heard this last week, the gospel wound. The Bible, God has to break you. He has to bring you to a realization of your need. That's what the law does. But if you just stay there, you're not, you, that's a miserable spot to be in, right? What needs to come next? Well, the righteousness of God, accepted by faith. That's where Martin Luther was. I mean, if we read the life of Martin Luther, he spent the first part of his life just in abject terror of God, beating himself daily. You know, just, you know, it's a wonder he even survived. He didn't even kill himself. So one day I was reading through Romans chapter 1, all of a sudden it hit him. The righteousness of God, revealed from faith to faith, is written, the just shall live by faith. And he says, finally he got it. And he said, at that moment, a burden was lifted from him, and he understood what it meant to be justified. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You want to go back to the law that doesn't save you? You, you come to Christ in faith. You, you, you're now a believer. Now you want to go back to the Old Testament law of Judaism, of, of all the rules and rituals and rites, and be chained to that? You want to go back and do that? I think I think the glory part of it is 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 what does it mean to glorify God? Right, put him in his place to display to display what he is like, right? To show show him for what you glorify God when you act like God and you show other people what God is like. All right. How did the law show us what God was like? It showed us how righteous He really was, because we really didn't wouldn't know that, right? I remember what Paul said in Romans chapter five. I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law said, "Thou shalt not covet." And until it came around, I was fine. Then all of a sudden it comes around and says, thou shalt not covet. And it killed me. And not only did it kill me, but once I found out I couldn't covet, I wanted to covet all the more. All right. Um, I think the idea there is the law is glorious in the sense that it displays what God was like. It showed his righteousness. But the second part of that is, then how do I obtain that righteousness? It's by faith. Now, did they have that in the Old Testament? Yes. But it wasn't fully understood as it is in the new. All right. Right. And you make you when whenever you make God look good, you glorify Him. Yeah. Um, do you think any of that has to do with when it talks about Moses having received the law, the fact that it was given directly from God to man? 
Right. Right. None like this one. And, and, and Paul, in fact, Paul uses the fading glory of Moses. He had to cover his face and veil his glory. It faded, right? It was not lasting. Was the law intended to be, the old covenant, was it intended to be an everlasting covenant? No, it never was. And that's where the Jews blew it big time. Because they turned it into this permit, never to be changed thing. Even though Jeremiah came along and talked about the new covenant, they didn't catch it. And so they create, so when they found that the law couldn't save them, then they twisted it so that it sort of could save them. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds more in glory. You think the glory of the old was good, wait until you see the glory of the new. Because now you really see the full character of God. And let's ask a question, all right? You go back before the cross. You're living 50 BC. Someone talks about the, you know, the, the mercy and, and, and compassion and love of God. How do you define that? Yeah. What God did in Egypt, the mercy, whatever. How do you explain it 50 years after the cross? Not only did God do something, God became one of us. And he allowed himself to be nailed on a cross, one of the most shameful deaths imaginable. And he took my place. You see the glory of the new? Well, the glory of the old was great, but look at the glory of the new. You want to really know what God is like? If you really want to know what is God like, where do you look? The cross. What did he do? God sacrificed. God made the greatest sacrifice God could make. What, if you ask God, if you something about this, somebody said, well, why did Christ have to die on the cross? Why? Why was it that? Why didn't? Why couldn't have God have created a salvation, designed a salvation that didn't require that? Well, what? What is the greatest demonstration of love God could give us? What's the greatest way you can love someone else? Die for them. The greatest thing, and that's why the cross is necessary. God did the greatest thing he could possibly do to demonstrate his love for us. And before the cross, we didn't know that. After the cross, it's like, wow. It's the cross of Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at the cross of Christ. What did God do for me? Yeah. And you know, the glory of the the glory of the old was fading because it was never intended to be permanent. But the glory of the new doesn't fade. For what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, 
will use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He veiled his face because he was losing the glory. It was fading away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. What, what was their minds blinded to? There's a new covenant coming. They were blinded to the purpose of the old. you got to understand that. And that's the hard thing for us to understand, being this side of the cross. The Jews had totally corrupted and twisted and misinterpreted the meaning of the law. No. They were blinded because of their heart, their hardness. They had twisted it to be a legal code that, that would make me righteous to God. And all God was doing was giving the law to show what the righteous standard was. And there are people that picked up on it. David did. David describes the blessedness of the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Uh, Abraham got it. Elijah, Elisha got it. Isaiah got it. There are people that got it for the, but, but when it came to Christ's time, they had created a system of works righteousness and they went around patting themselves on the back of how great and wonderful and godly they were because they kept these rules that they made. And they missed the point of why God gave it. They made the rules. And they made rules that they could keep. See, that's the thing. If you're going to create a religion, you've got to create one that you can attain to, right? Generally, but look at the, the, all the people yeah. he smited. He smoted. Yeah. Smitten. Um, no, God, God is a God of holiness. And one of the main lessons he was trying to bring about in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was to let people know how holy he was. Why do you think that you had the veil? You, had to, you couldn't go straight, straight into the presence of God. You had to go through the sacrifices, the priests. God was trying to drill, beat into their heads, I'm holy, you're not. And you're really, not only not holy, you're really loathsome to me. I don't want you in my presence. He was trying to get them to understand that as a, as a people. And when an individual picked up their true state before God and their need for, for, for God's forgiveness, that's when God invited them into his presence. But God was trying to get them to understand just how holy he was. And the problem is, the Pharisees, what they did is they, they saw how holy God was, so the only way they could reconcile that instead of coming to Christ or coming to God in faith and asking forgiveness is then they reinterpreted things to make them righteous. And God not quite as righteous. So they, they brought God down, they raised him up, then they made themselves meet in the middle. And then they were happy with themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, that it was 
it's not that it was so obscured in the Old Testament people didn't get it. Because, you know, you look at just the examples in the Old Testament of people, David, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Abraham. Abraham was the number one person. And how was he justified before God? Well, let's see. He kept the law. No, that law didn't come till 400 years later. I know he was circumcised. No, that came after he was justified. Yeah, it wasn't circumcision. I know, I know, he was a Jew. Well, no, there weren't any Jews at that time. He was the first one, you know. I mean, if they would have just thought about it, it would have got it through to them that, wait a minute, like like Paul says in Romans 4, by faith. I was Abraham justified by faith before he was circumcised, before there was a Jewish nation, and 400 years before the law came. But they missed that. And they created a religion that they could meet. And that's why Christ beat on them incessantly. You've missed the point. That's the whole message of, of the Sermon on the Mount right there. The, the, you know, the, the point, if you, want to, if you want to reduce the Sermon on the Mount down to one thing, Christ says, you've missed the point. You've created a system. You, you, you've, you've related to sticking a knife in a guy's back or committing an act of adultery or or not swearing by the right thing. You've forgotten it's the heart that God's worried about. You think that you, God's going to hear you for your long prayers. And it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with your heart. You think because you fast twice a week and make yourself look like you've gone without food for a month that that makes God happy. And it has nothing to do with that. And you think it's the amount of money you give with the trumpet. And it's not that at all. It's what you give that nobody knows about. You've missed the point. It's all about the heart. It's not about what you do. It's about what what do you what's inside you. They miss that. That's the sad thing. They missed it. And Paul here is saying, you missed it. You want to go back to that? You want to let these guys come in and tell you that somehow you gotta go back to this mosaic law that wasn't there to make you righteous in the first place, and by following it, it's a burden. It it kills you. It condemns you. Well, you want to go back to that? Their, blind, their minds are blinded by their sin. And he's using the metaphor of the veil, the temple veil here. It's veil. They don't, they don't see it. And part of the reason they didn't see it as a nation is why? Because they didn't want to see it. And remember the, 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 the biblical principle, if you don't want the truth, God may not let you have it. You might take it away and you may never believe. In fact, God may harden your heart. He may blind your eyes. He may stop up your ears. It's a judicial blinding by God. Israel, going to the promised land. Oh no, they're too big for us. We can't do that. They stay up all night whining and bawling and crying, right? Remember that? Finally, the next day, God shows up. And what happened to the ten guys that gave a bad report? They went straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect 200. You know, ground opens up, down they go, right? And God says, because you would not go in, now you can't go in. They said, well, we're going to go in anyways. So they did, right? What happened? They got slapped all the way back to the wilderness. They, they couldn't. They lost. They got beat. God wasn't with them. And they got to wander 40 years. And God says, because you would not go, now you can't go. 
God does not always have the offer of salvation on the table. That's one of the things, you know, as pastors now. You, you may reject the Lord now, and you may live another 50 years and never again give God a second thought. And you're as bit as much in hell now as you'll ever be. The offer's not always there. And Paul, and Paul is saying, they're blinded. They got the veil on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Remember? As a nation, they're blinded, but individuals can still turn, right? And when they turn, what happens? The veil is taken away. Now they do what? They see. They understand. And that's why that's why everybody in here ought to be a Calvinist if you're not one. Because how does how does somebody who is blind and dull hear? God's got to open their eyes, right? God's got to unstop the. God's got to take the initiative. And if God doesn't take the initiative, nothing happens. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Liberty from what? Law, not not liberty. Do what you do want to do. You know, have at it. Go sin. That's not what he's talking about. There's freedom from the law. There's freedom from the rules. I'm no longer bound by rules. When I became an adult, how did my relationship to my parents change? No more rules, right? I have liberty. It doesn't mean I don't respect them as my parents. It doesn't mean I don't treat them with respect and honor. It just means that I don't have to worry about going to bed when they tell me to. Right? Or eating my lima beans. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I think there is a, there's a, there's a connection there. The point is, when you come to Christ, the veil is lifted, you're forgiven, you're, you're justified. What happens? There's an immediate freedom from what? From the bondage of trying to make God happy. Because now all of a sudden you realize, I can't. You're free. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. He's talking about there about our sanctification. Those of us who are redeemed as we look at the Lord and gaze upon His glory, what's happening to us? We're changing from one level of glory. You know, and all that all that is is that as you as you gaze upon Christ, as you gaze upon Him, what's happening to your sanctification? Becoming more like Him. You're going from glory to glory to glory. Someday we will be like Him. We're making our way there. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. 
For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.